This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. My name is Michael Primo. I'm executive producer of Storyline, which I co-founded with my uh, primary collaborator, Rachel Falcone. A through line in all of our work is this idea of home. What does home mean? What does home feel like? Spiritually, emotionally, physically, literally, metaphorically. We started Sandy Storyline in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. The primary design question was how do we collaborate with millions of people to tell a story? We created this sort of interactive uh, website, ex- web-based experience, buddy who was touched by the storm in any way to share their experiences, to really just like try to create this picture of how the storm was affecting this metropolis of 20 million people. Another project that touches on this theme is Water Warriors. Water Warriors is a short film exhibition about a community's successful fight to protect their water. Water is the gift of life. Nothing in this world can live without water. The Ossipuktuk First Nation built this successful multicultural alliance with their white settler neighbors. Uh, to protect their water from fracking. We are all warriors, and we are here to protect. Everyday average individuals who are coming together to fight and defend and protect what matters most to them. recent purchases in your neighborhood include a two-family on 41 Galuli Road, a three-family at 176 Clark Avenue, a condo at 67 Marble Street, a two-family at 13 Cheever Street, a two-family at 690 Broadway, and a six-family at 53 to 55 Maverick Street. Your home can be next. We will purchase your property in cash. We will pay all your closing costs. We will purchase your property in any condition. We look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Kieran Brosnan. Pretty much all of my works begin with the questions. What here is new? What here is not? We would like to have a nice, clean river and accessible waterfront. But with the desire to have that comes the threat for us to be displaced. Climate catastrophe is a force multiplier of all things dystopic, fascistic, and apocalyptic. But when you pull back the layers of, say, COVID, superstorms, seasonal fires, supply chain failures, war, what you can see is the enduring blueprints of asymmetrical imperial and colonial power. On the 33-acre land will be a casino and resort as tall as the windmill. Climate catastrophe views new to many of us, but we are right to suspect that the conditions that create that catastrophe feel like many familiar forms of racial, national, and class oppression. 
I think that the main way that humans get stuck is we forget how to see outside ourselves, and art can make it possible to try. We organize at a grassroots level. We need to fight for our place. Pollution and environmental disasters have led to public health crisis. Some places are called Cancer Alley, and children play while suffering from asthma, surrounded by industrial pollution. Both my ancestral lands and the place that I call home now in the southeast, in Louisiana and Florida, Mobile where I was born, uh, we are prone to ongoing monsoons, ongoing hurricanes. In Louisiana, we are losing almost a football field of wetlands every hour. These wetlands serve as protection against increasingly terrible hurricanes, floods, and tornadoes. The idea of climate displacement is not just about the physical displacement that people experience. It is also the displacement of spirit of soul, of being. Many, many moons ago, the people of the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean had a sacred relationship with the land, the water, and for the most part, with each other too, respecting cycles and rhythms of the planet. And this idea of where is home, where is my people, where can I feel safe? How can I survive? How can I create conditions for me to be well and to thrive? Uh, I think those are conditions that are really difficult for us to find um, for ourselves. Together, we believe another gulf is possible where we can survive and thrive without fear of each other free of oppression, where we can live in balance with our natural resources, our land and our water, and still meet our energy needs. My name is Luisania Cruz, and I am a Dominican participatory artist based in Brooklyn, New York, formerly known as the Lenape Hoken land, um, which was taken away from the Lenape people. In my practice, I incorporate audience participation in order to investigate notions of being and belonging within the public sphere. Most recently, I've been working on a project titled The Investigation of the Dominican Racial Imaginary, which is a participatory project that looks at the ways in which the nation state of the Dominican Republic has erased and repressed um, our African heritage from our identity. I've been thinking of sugar and specifically its links to the plantation system, our colonial path, um, and the ways it has like racialized bodies. I'm interested in, in finding ways that we could better articulate the human impact of these extractive economies. Um, and also if we could envision ways um, that we could create uh, a change um, from them. When I think about climate displacement, 
something that comes to mind right away for me living here in Puerto Rico is colonization. My name is Eli Jacobs Fantausi, and I am the director producer of We Still Here, or en español, Nos Tenemos. Caminar por mi pueblo y apreciar el río que atraviesa en él. Así es vivir en comunidad. Así es vivir en casa. Cuando estaba llegando el huracán María, vimos cómo el río estaba entrando al pueblo. Mi cuarto era, mi cuarto era ahí. Y como ya ven, pues ya no hay nada. My film focuses on a group of youth in Comerío, Puerto Rico, that are fighting for justice in the recovery process. Es que esperaba más del municipio, del gobierno, para las personas que perdieron sus casas, sus hogares. O sea, están muy lentos, o sea, me decepcionaron en esa parte. The people in power, FEMA and the government, decided that they would give families coupons to go to the United States and live in hotels rather than use money to reconstruct their houses. People do not want to leave their homes. So what is a response to that? What does it look like to stay? And the English name of my film is We Still Here, which are the people that decided to stay, are the people that um, against all odds are going to rebuild the future for themselves and they're going to do that together. Es algo que siempre me ha gustado hacer, ser líder, ayudar. Esto soy yo. Yo voy a ser su guía turística el día de hoy. Mucho gusto, Mariano. No puede ser perfecto, trata de ser lo original. Y es que tú tienes el control de tu cuerpo, lo puedes lograr. Good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I'm Jeremy Geffen, the Executive and Artistic Director for Cal Performances. It's my great pleasure to have all of you here this this afternoon or evening, depending on your point of view, and to welcome you into this discussion of a theme that we've been exploring for uh, the, the past season, uh, that of place and displacement, um, where we all feel we belong and where for by our own design or by, uh, for, because of forces greater than our own, um, we wind up. And this has been a very illuminating uh, and uh, at times wrenching exploration. Um, this afternoon, we're, we have a fantastic panel to discuss what you've just uh, seen on the, fil uh, the film as well as what uh, many other t topics um, that will be brought up by people far more knowledgeable than, than myself. And I'm here, uh, for my, my primary role um, is to introduce to you David Ackerley, who is a professor and the dean of the Rouser College of Natural Resources, who will introduce the rest of the panel. Thank you.
Thank you, Jeremy, for introducing the introducer. Um, I'm David Ackerley, Dean of Rouser College of Natural Resources, and good evening. I'm pleased to welcome you all to tonight's event, Multidisciplinary Perspectives on Climate Displacement, which we're hosting in partnership with the School of Cities at University of Toronto. We're pleased to welcome all those at UC Berkeley who are here in person and those of you listening online here in Toronto and elsewhere. Before proceeding further, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. UC Berkeley sits on the territory of Huchun, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chochenyo-speaking Ohlone people, the successors of the sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the Moekma Ohlone tribe and the descendants of the Verona Band. The Moekma Ohlone peoples are members of the Bay Area community today, but the Berkeley community displaced them from this land. Berkeley community members continue to benefit from the use and occupation of this land. Consistent with our values of community inclusion and diversity, we have a responsibility to acknowledge and make visible the university's relationship to Native peoples. Human-induced climate change is threatening populations through rising sea levels, drought, heat waves, ever more severe storms, and disruptions to energy and food production. On a global scale, we are witnessing a climate gap as the benefits of the fossil fuel economy have accrued to a few and the impacts of these changes are disproportionately affecting vulnerable and marginalized groups due to historically entrenched inequalities and shifts in the nature of the global economy. These populations not only feel the immediate impacts of climate change more significantly, but also have the fewest resources to adapt to these impacts. Climate change has catalyzed forced migration from disappearing or unlivable land due to sea level rise, wildfire, drought, flooding, and more. In recent years, severe flooding or drought have contributed to the Syrian civil war and refugee crisis, the Rohingya exodus from Myanmar, and the violence and immigration from the Northern Triangle in Central America. In 2017, the United States topped all countries in the world in the number of new asylum claims it received. And in 2019, Canada received over half of all refugees in the entire world. The sheer numbers are staggering and only likely to increase. And when refugees reach our shores, they often face political and social conflicts over inclusion, representation, and resources. But meanwhile, most refugees from poorer countries do not make it to high-income democratic communities, but live in refugee camps. We need to study the social and economic effects of climate change in rural, urban, and refugee communities and their impacts on democracy, inclusion, and inequality around the world. And the only way to take on a complex problem of this scale is to combine experts on climate and environmental change with social scientists who model networks and population movements, as well as researchers analyzing the consequences of such movements for the people involved, the countries they leave, and the policies by which they are governed. Governed. At UC Berkeley, we embraced this challenge by launching a cluster hire to recruit the top emerging scholars across different disciplines. We recruited five assistant professors, four of whom are here speaking tonight, Maya Carrasquillo in engineering, Daniel Aldana Cohen in sociology, Zoe Hampstead in city and regional planning, and Danielle Ridevera in landscape architecture and environmental planning. Meg Mills-Navoa in environmental science policy and management had hoped to be with us, but she is isolating with a mild case of COVID. At the University of Toronto School of Cities, our partner in this event, Director, Director Karen Chappell, initiated a set of multidisciplinary activities around climate justice, which she'll tell you about in a moment. 
She's a professor emerita at UC Berkeley, where, as city planning department chair, she spearheaded the climate justice faculty hires at the College of Environmental Design. So, to all the speakers, please come take your seats on the stage at this time. A reminder to our audience, if you haven't already, please silence your cell phones, and I will turn the program over to Karen Chappell. Thank you again for being here tonight. Jeremy and David uh, for the introductions, and thanks so much to our panelists for joining. Uh, and I want to give a special thank you to the Artist Circle on Climate Displacement at the Othering Belonging Institute for lifting up the voices of both those whose lives have been turned upside down by climate displacement and those working so hard to help. A couple quick words about the School of Cities at the University of Toronto and the Urban Displacement Project, which is my own research lab. The School of Cities teaches the world why cities matter for justice and sustainability. And when I arrived as the director, I decided to spend the first couple years focusing on climate justice. To begin creating a community of practice around climate and justice issues, we provided scholars from over 20 different departments with a total of $600,000 in funding to fund their research on issues like health vulnerability to heat waves and uneven access to parks. We also created a couple speaker series, including the release of the IPCC's sixth assessment report on cities just last month. So when Cal Performances asked me to organize an event for the Illuminations Place and Displacement series, they were thinking of highlighting the Urban Displacement Project. But instead, I thought it would be a great opportunity to connect two great North American institutions, the universities at Berkeley and Toronto, um, to introduce the next generation of climate scholars and to lift up the issue of climate displacement. So what do we anticipate in terms of the impacts of climate-induced displacement? Well, the latest World Bank estimates suggests that by 2050, the numbers will reach over 200 million each year due to slow onset climate change impacts from water scarcity, low crop productivity, and sea level rise, and also less livability because of heat stress, extreme events, and land loss. Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Latin America will be the hardest hit. Where will those displaced by climate go? By and large, they'll go to cities. Seventy percent of the world's population will be in cities by 2050. And history has shown that those who are displaced tend to go to cities where there's economic opportunities and where chances are they have contacts. By and large, they'll go to cities that are cooler. And these places are largely in the global north. This is an enormous challenge for coming decades. Cities are going to have to learn how to accommodate millions of newcomers, and this is going to require new thinking about equitable development or how to address inequality and increase opportunity on a large scale. We're trying right now to remake our cities with climate mitigation. Across North America, we're trying measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We build new parks, bikeways, transit lines. But it isn't easy, and that's partly because of the legacy of urban renewal. Neighborhoods were traumatized by government actions 
in the urban renewal era, and they still don't trust the public sector. Just imagine all the standard sources of displacement that low-income communities face. Now add to that new pressure from climate mitigation measures. We call this double vulnerability. And you can find lots of new research on this on our website, urbandisplacement.org. This illumination series at Cal Performances has largely been about the history and disempowerment of displacement. But let me just outline a few ways that climate displacement brings a new and different set of issues to cope with in the future. Solastalgia is a sense of loss stemming from place attachment. And communities that are displaced by climate are particularly prone to suffer from this sense of loss because their places are usually gone forever. The new displacement is also different from prior waves of immigration because we're talking mainly about movement from developing countries in the south to advanced industrial nations in the north. And also we're seeing new cultural and political tensions. Receiving communities often battle over cultural issues, and conflicts can be violent as migrants are forced to integrate. There's one interesting analogy we could look at. We can compare climate migration today to the great northern migration of blacks from the south. That was 6 million people in 60 years. Remember, though, now we're talking about hundreds of millions of people, even though only a fraction of those will be able to cross the borders of their country to go north. Another important point to consider is that at the time of the Great Migration, we had tremendous job growth. We had manufacturing, we had the war machine at work, and we had new mechanisms to build and finance housing construction at scale. For instance, subdivision development and the VA Act. We no longer have job and housing growth at this scale. We no longer have opportunities at this scale to accommodate newcomers. And in fact, we have an employment crisis and we have a housing crisis. So there are important questions here about what justice will look like in this new era of climate displacement. And with that, I'm going to join our panel so they can share thoughts on that. Thank you. So, welcome. (laughs) Great to see you guys. Um, I I hope we could start by hearing a little bit from each of you about your own research and, if possible, how it relates to climate displacement. Um, And I can start at one end or the other. Um, How about Daniel? Sure. Um, Hi, Karen. Great to see you here. Good. Thank you for everybody who's joined us for this conversation. Uh, It's a huge topic. Um, My name is Daniel Donna-Cohen. I've been studying housing and climate politics for a little over a decade now. Uh, And in particular, what I've looked at in my academic research is how have housing movements uh, dealt with low-carbon or ostensibly low-carbon green redevelopment schemes in big cities like Sao Paulo and New York? How have housing movements responded to climate disasters? And when housing movements have been able to join with progressive allies, what kinds of um, climate policies have they supported in big cities? 
Um, and I've also done research on policy. I'm on the policy team of the Homes Guarantee Campaign, which is a national network of tenant movements. And partly uh, in that role, I led the research um, for the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act, which was introduced uh, in 2019 and again in 2021 by um, AOC and, and Bernie Sanders. Um, and I guess what I would quickly say, I think the work I've done that's most relevant to this question is thinking about what are the ways in which people who are at the front lines of housing insecurity right now, how do they imagine uh, what housing security would look like? What kinds of large-scale investments in non-market housing do they want to see? And I think we can learn quite a bit from efforts they've made to build housing and to build communities that they feel safe in to say, okay, this is a model that we can scale up, uh, build more rapidly, put more investments into as we think about far more people moving into these cities, whether these cities are in North America or cities in Brazil or elsewhere in the world. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Maya Carrasquillo, and I am in civil and environmental engineering here. Um, much of my previous research has engaged uh, stormwater management, stormwater decision-making, particularly working with black and brown communities in the southeast U.S., um, particularly Tampa, Florida, and Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and more recently, I've been focusing on this through line, which much of my research has um, really focused on for the last several years around environmental climate justice and even uh, more specifically social justice and engineering um, as well as equitable decision-making practices. And I guess I would say that um, in as it relates to my work, um, in particular when we think about stormwater, green infrastructure, um, and developing systems, um, and I think the biggest thing that my work tries to center is community stakeholder involvement, um, in particular those who, again, are at the front lines, those who are most uh, vulnerable or susceptible to especially large-scale flooding events, um, and really wanting to ideate with them and, and acknowledge the ways in which they are reimagining, as Daniel said, um, climate justice scenarios, environmental justice scenarios with the infrastructure that they engage with every single day. Um, I think there's an opportunity in the work that we do between engineering, planning, and across all of the different disciplines represented here um, to not only work with communities, but to, I, I think, expand the ways that engineering in particular has traditionally practiced building infrastructure um, and minimizing infrastructural violence so that we can actually imagine infrastructural futures um, that are liberating uh, to these communities and no longer kind of relegating them to the places that they've been in the past. Hi, I'm uh, Danielle Zoe Rivera, um, and I'm an uh, environmental planner and urban designer. Um, so I take a very different tact to a lot of this work that's intensely spatial. Um, so most of my work in the past has been looking at inequitable access to um, environmental planning strategies. Uh, across multiple different communities across South Texas and in Puerto Rico. And um, one thing I've noted over time is that a lot of these um, historical inequities, a lot of which, you know, Karen was mentioning earlier, um, have generated all kinds of repercussions in terms of access to uh, environmental planning today. Um, and seeing these issues on the ground, they oftentimes um, take the form in communities as environmental justice movements, climate justice movements. But my work has also been looking at issues after disasters, so looking at calls for disaster justice, um, equitable access to uh, post-disaster recovery and reconstruction. And that's really where I think a lot of my work has been intersecting with issues of climate displacement is, and this is something I'll talk about more detail uh, throughout today, um, what, when do we need to understand 
that displacement is necessary versus when are we actually seeing historic trends of inequitable access to infrastructure sort of overlaying and becoming used as a reason for why people need to be displaced. And so that's something I've been talking to a lot of communities about, um, and I'll talk about more uh, today. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here with my colleagues having this um, really important conversation. I'm Zoe Hampstead. I'm a member of the Faculty of City and Regional Planning here at Berkeley, and um, most of my research broadly looks at climate planning-related issues, and specifically around urban heat. Um, heat is considered to be the greatest weather-related killer that is also exacerbated by climate change, and along with extreme cold, accounts for nearly all weather-related fatalities, which disproportionately impact people of color, people living in the global south, um, people living in poverty, and other marginalized groups. And these health threats are exacerbated by the way that the built environment is constructed and, and by the way that the built environment is managed. But a lot of those processes through which we construct these dangerous built environments um, are really invisibilized, as are the experience of, of people who are um, suffering the health impacts. And so my research um, recently has become increasingly concerned with, like, what are those processes through which these kinds of experiences are being invisibilized? Um, and, you know, from an urban planning and public health perspective, what can we do to protect people from weather that really threatens their health? And so I call my research agenda to try to understand those things at critical heat studies. And one of the things that I've learned, especially from my field research, which has involved a lot of conversations with people who are experiencing the kinds of threats that I care about, um, is that... Uh, Vulnerability to things like heat and cold are very place-based experiences, and people learn how to cope and adapt over long periods over time. Um, and I've witnessed some really incredible adaptations that people um, have been able to um, um, engage in in really harsh weather conditions. So I think that this issue of migration, climate displacement, um, is actually quite central uh, to the work that I do and the, and the problems that I care about. So I'm looking forward to talking about that more. Wow. Um, aren't they amazing? What a fascinating set of introductions. Um, so I'm going to jump right into some of the hard questions. Um, so it, there's, it, there's a question about how we should think about climate migration versus climate displacement um, and why, why we're focusing on displacement. Um, and, and I want us all, in answering that question, to, to think about places and displacement, which is the name of this series. So, you know, what does it mean to abandon places? And how should we understand this in terms of global south-north power dynamics? And I could call, I mean, a, a few of you really had uh, comments that were relevant to this. I, Danielle, would you oh, kick us off? I knew it the way you were looking at me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had a feeling this was your baby. Yeah, certainly. So um, for me, I think I'm most concerned about equity concerns when we're talking about migration and displacement. And I think the reason that we should focus on displacement first and then migration is because obviously you need 
you're going to get displacement before you get migration. And as I think the video showed really clearly and beautifully, there's so many issues involved with displacement. And you can look at gentrification and displacement studies that already exist and exist in many different capacities, not even just traditional gentrification studies, but even those focused on ecological or environmental gentrification to understand the emotional toll that displacement takes on an individual. But I think from my own research, what I'm most concerned about when we talk about climate displacement is um, what I've seen in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, which is that in practice, um, I've seen the term climate displacement used more than anything to underpin capitalist interests across the archipelago. So after Maria, um, there are two very well-known examples of displacement in northwestern Puerto Rico. It was a coastal land. It's also um, for those who still have in, uh, indigenous ties to the Taino people. These are very important lands um, that are basically being called risky and unsafe and unfit for habitation. But in the process of removing people from the coastline, what we see is capitalist interest in the form of tourism coming up, and suddenly this land is being repurposed as a resort. And um, I have countless examples of this happening across Puerto Rico, even before Hurricane Maria. We can look at the Caño Martín Peña in San Juan. Half that informal settlement was removed because of fears um, they're along a stormwater canal. It was too risky. The second those individuals were removed, a stadium was built on those lands. And so for me, I think when we talk about displacement and this issue of power dynamics, it's really, you know, what what are the visions we have for these lands if we're removing people? And in my case, um, I'm seeing forceful removal, and that has all kinds of um, other issues tied to it. But really, um, that, that for me is my concern, why we should focus on displacement and the equity concerns. How are we using these terms? When are we applying them? Uh, whose interests are being served? Whose aren't? These are all, for me, really important questions. I guess I'll jump in because um, there's something that Daniel said that I, I want to just kind of build off of. And I, I guess the, the first question of displacement versus migration, I think that invisible through line between those two terms is really this idea of choice, whether or not you're forced out versus whether or not you make the decision yourself to leave um, or stay. And I think, um, you know, similar to what Danielle said when we talk about certain communities that are at the front lines on co in coastal um, regions, we have kind of gotten to the point of characterizing these places as unlivable. Um, even in our introduction earlier, I think we, <laughs> we used that phrase. Um, and I think it's, I think the, the piece there is, I th as we try to characterize a lot of the challenges that we're seeing with climate change, um, you know, whether it's unlivable, whether it's risky, I think in the process of doing so, we have a tendency to approach this from a very deficit framing perspective. And in doing so, now we're characterizing not only spaces, but spaces that are not just spaces, but they're homes to people. They're um, spiritual havens, they're familial havens, they're places that people have thrived for, for generations and now they're being told that they can't live there anymore. And so I think that conversation of choice and, and displacement versus migration and, you know, why people make the decision to leave or stay is, is very complex. And I think as we continue to talk about it, it's important that we're, you know, even conscientious of the language that we use and how we characterize spaces and, and subsequently characterize the people who live in those spaces. 
Um, okay, I'm going to jump in on this. I don't have something as profound as you two to say about the migration displacement disconnect, but I do want to jump in on the framing question. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, something I've been saying lately is that the history of the climate emergency is the history of colonialism and is the history of racial capitalism. Um, and I actually think you could characterize that as eco-apartheid. Maybe that's a separate conversation, but I think the word says enough and probably the, the theme is pretty clear in this conversation. Um, I think another way of putting that then is that the history of climate displacement or the history of climate migration is simply the history of migration and the history of displacement. And you, know, you evoked this, Karen, of course, with the analogy, which I think is appropriate to some degree of the great migration. Of course, as you mentioned, the economic situation is different. The cities into which people are going to be moving will also be being battered by extreme weather in a way that's never been seen before. Um, and of course, as, as Maya and Danielle were saying, in many cases, you will have people being told they can't live where they're living, and climate change is essentially an excuse. You're essentially greenwashing displacement for economic purposes. We're seeing this in the ways that peasants are being bullied into moving uh, into cities in uh, Bangladesh. We're seeing it in Puerto Rico. We've seen it in Staten Island. We're seeing this all over the world. Um, my sort of view on this is there will be innumerable cases of unjust displacement that should be fought. At the same time, it is also true that there will be tens of millions of people moving, if not more. Um, Matt Hauer, who's a great climate demographer, uh, has estimated that at a somewhat high level of sea level rise this century, by the end of the century, 40 million people are projected to live on land that floods once a year. And we could elevate some houses, but at the end of the day, people will be on the move, um, mostly within countries, but also between them. And so then, to me, this brings us to, I guess, a final reframing I'll make right now, and I'm sure we'll return to it. The climate problem is not a problem of taxation. It's a problem of investment. And then it becomes a problem of organizing. So how will trillions of dollars be spent on the built environment? This is going to happen. We've talked about the Financial Times, World Economic Forum. Every major institution of global capitalism, minus the Republican Party, is reconciled to trillions of dollars coming to the built environment. Will we have the ability to organize progressive politics for movements to organize on the ground for those trillions to build communities in which people feel at home? Are there conditions under which tens of millions of people could move that won't feel as traumatizing, uh, where the emancipatory won't be, potential won't be ruined as it was with the Great Migration uh, landing in the midst of, of Jim Crow and that being hardened? So I think these are big questions we have to wrestle with. And to me, one of the biggest ones is how do you invest in a, in a how do you invest profoundly in building new communities in a way that the people who um, live amidst those investments embrace and even direct that change? That's a really hard question, but I think that's something we have to grapple with. And you, I think you alluded to that as well, Karen, in your opening remarks. I'll just say very briefly, and maybe we can continue talking about this in, in some of the following discussion, that I think what your question sort of raises for me is... Um, that perhaps we should resist a tendency to sort of homogenize what the experiences of migration, displacement, and probably a variety of other terms that we could um, that we could use are because, as Maya pointed out, some people are moving by choice. Others, um, for others, this is sort of a forced experience. And so, for many people who have already moved because of climate change, job opportunities, job stability is better in communities that. Um, are more have more hospitable climates. For other people, um, there's a really intrinsic dependence upon ecosystems that are quite place-based. And not only ecosystems, but culture and identity are bound up in place. And so the abandonment is really existential in terms of culture. Um, and so it's... Uh, 
You know, at, at the same time, we're sort of trying to understand what this means at a global scale, right? Like what population expansion and shrinkage is going to look like. Is that shrinkage going to look like what it did in Rust Belt cities when industry and capitalism abandoned Cleveland and, and Buffalo and Detroit? Um, or is it going to look vastly different because there isn't going to be, you know, a possibility for any type of infrastructure or community? Um, so we're trying to sort of do these predictions and trying to, to understand the kind of global mathematics and what the flight paths are going to look like. Um, but I think it's also really important to sort of step back and, um, and try to understand if you're in a community that's sort of receiving people, they've had a really complex experience that, um, you know, in some, in some cases is a, is a real loss of... Um, of existence that, you know, I think is sort of hard to wrap your head around in the, you know, the kind of positionality and affluence that we're coming from. Yeah, and that's exactly what we saw in the film, actually, was was uh, talking about the loss of soul, loss of place. So um, so we'll come back to these issues of investment. I want to I wanna circle back to uh, the communities that are sending... Um, climate refugees and and thinking about the the context of the Americas because that's where you guys have done most of your research. Um, you know what 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 can we add to the conversation uh, about these um, uh, sending places and and in particular if you want to talk about specific types of disasters or climate emergencies that you're particularly worried about. Um, you know what what are the vulnerabilities here in the sending places. Okay, um, I can start. <laughs> so the first vulnerability is American imperial power. Um, my mother is Guatemalan, and we have had a lot of stories about you know, migrant caravans coming from Guatemala. Often this is attributed in part, and in part correctly, to increased patterns of drought in a dry corridor. Um, but this, people who are fleeing are also fleeing from situations of extreme, extreme ecological and economic precarity. And in many cases, that can be um, traced to American political intervention. We can think about the coup in Guatemala um, in the early 1950s, which was essentially done at the behest of the United Fruit Company uh, because they did not want to have land redistribution in that country, land redistribution which would have made it much easier for peasants, in many cases Maya peasants, to um, have a life for themselves. Uh, and then since then, we're now seeing all across Central America and in many parts of South America a huge amount of violence occasioned by the drug wars, quote-unquote, drug wars. To me, one of the biggest things we could do to alleviate the, pleasure, the pressures of climate change and climate breakdown on people in these communities is to legalize drugs and to not have an enormous amount of violence um, wreaked upon communities all over the Americas um, for totally unnecessary reasons, which are only making things worse. Um, Christian Prenti, who's a great journalist, has a book called Tropics of Chaos, where he talks about, in so many cases, communities around the tropics are experiencing um, the converging threats of rising heat, uh, all the violence left over from the Cold War, uh, and then the impacts of structural adjustment policies that have weakened the social safety nets of those countries. So generally speaking, I think that uh, there's a lot to say about the social conditions in parts of Latin America, but in many cases, the social conditions that are causing so much distress can be traced to the actions of the American government, American corporations, and then to local elites which have been supported by U.S. power. Hard to follow, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's looking at me. Um, 
Well, definitely, um, I, I agree with a lot of what Daniel's been saying, and um, a lot of the work I've been doing with disasters has been tracing the use of disaster um, as a way of furthering, further entrenching uh, injustice and inequity um, through what I call, it's, it's a complement to Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism, but also looking at the flip side of what we see so much in Latin America as that intricate relationship between capitalism and colonialism and understanding how disasters are not just used to further uh, capitalist interests, but also colonial interests. And we see that really well in Puerto Rico after uh, Hurricane Maria. Um, And we've also seen it across the Gulf of Mexico recently with the repeated hurricanes and tropical storms that they've been dealing with in the last two or three years. Um, And so I think really we can't really talk in any sophisticated way about climate refugees if we're not understanding the conditions that cause them to be refugees in the first place. And I think of the incredible work of Farhana Sultana, uh, who's really done a good job of understanding how colonialism and uh, colonial interests across the globe have led to an increase in um, not just the effects of climate change, but also the climate migration patterns we're starting to see. Um, and so I really think that that oftentimes when I hear about climate displacement in the communities I work in is lost. We just see the risk and we see the communities that are at risk and we're not diving into the histories that led those individuals to be more susceptible. Um, and I think we can't have valuable conversations about climate displacement if we don't un- acknowledge those histories and make reparations as well for those histories. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of add another story that builds on the Danielle and Danielle. <laughs> we have a lot of da- Danielle and Zoe's. We have multiple Danielles and Zoe's. Um, I think about uh, the grief in a, um, communities in Honduras. They were a um, Afro-Caribbean community who was um, abandoned on the island of Roatan. Now they're facing sea level rise. Um, pretty in the, I think it was just the last year, um, hurricanes and and other disasters struck that region. Um, but the dis- the displacement, you know, in part the diaspora to New York City that these communities are experiencing, um, is also driven by land theft, which is backed by U.S. corporations and. Um, supported by the state, even though it's illegal, um, cartel-driven violence. So there are all sorts of local contingencies and histories that I think are really important to understand when you know we're sort of environmentalists and people who care about the climate crisis. But um, we also need to understand the geopolitics and the um, the the really kind of place-based local politics that people have experienced as well. And I think about that. I know your question was about the communities from which displacement will be happening, but I think about that a lot on the receiving end as well, Um, in part because I did um, quite a bit of my field research in a Rust Belt city that has been proclaimed a climate haven or a climate refuge um, because it has a relatively mild summer climate, plentiful fresh water, affordable housing, um, and so forth, and yet none of that comports with the experiences of people who I talk to who are living in poverty and facing struggles to pay energy bills. Um, they're facing, you know, indoor housing conditions that are really inhospitable in the winter time. Um, I've spoken to people who've had 
you know, doors blown open, windows blown open during, during heavy wind, um, people who don't have access to a personal automobile and are dependent on public transportation that subjects them to really harsh conditions. And so I think there's, there's a real need to like look at these place-based contingencies, but also not just the kind of weather and average climate conditions, um, um, but the you know, sort of more holistic experience that people have with weather and climate. And what kind of infrastructure and social supports does it take to make communities really um, climate safe? And just to note, that community is Buffalo. Yes, that community <laughs> is Buffalo. <laughs> so um, I, I, I want to go back then um, to the receiving community, since we seem to have landed in Buffalo. <laughs> Fortuitously, and um, so you know, there, this is an area that I think um, many of you research quite a bit: is the transformations that are ongoing in American cities, the climate mitigations that we are putting into place, and who's benefiting and who is not. And and this is something that we could actually spend hours hours on. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about about that story. Um, you know, how can we make sure that our cities are ready, um, or what is happening? Um, at, you know, as 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 folks are landing in these cities. I guess I can start with this one. Um, so I mentioned, you know, I've I've done a quite a bit of green infrastructure, green stormwater infrastructure related um, research. And I think it's, you know, tangentially related to the topic of climate displacement, but I think very directly related to the broad conversation of displacement in that, you know, you have a, a form of infrastructure, for example, that's kind of characterized to help treat flooding, um, localized flooding in particular. Um, and when you start to see more of these investments being made at city levels and county levels and, you know, just kind of these broader investments and, and these strategic efforts, um, then you subsequently have, you know, what we know as green gentrification, um, where as, you know, you have these communities that are being built, um, typically even with these types of investments, it's intended for lower income communities, populations, those that are more vulnerable and susceptible to flooding. Um, and after a certain period of time, they are no longer able to actually benefit from those spaces because they can no longer afford to live there. Um, and I think, you know, again, tangentially related to the topic of climate displacement, but we're even seeing this, as Danielle mentioned earlier, specifically around climate, um, and that, you know, for example, in Miami, you've seen, um, you know, folks who live along Collins Ave, along North and South Beach, those who have more money to actually live coastal historically, now that Miami is kind of getting inundated with flooding and, and those spaces are no longer safe to live, they're now pushing themselves into Little Haiti, which historically has been considered a place that is less desirable. Um, but now because of lower cost of land um, and its distance from the shoreline, now it's an area that is more attractive. And so I think you're going to start to see those continual shifting patterns. We already started, we already are seeing those, those shifting patterns um, within cities um, across the U.S. in particular, 
where you know people are constantly being displaced. Those who were in in places that were less desirable historically are now being shifted from their homes, and and the question is where do they go? Um, and so I think there's you know so many different competing dynamics, especially when you're talking about the migration from. Um, the global south and, and places that are more vulnerable globally, but even within the U.S., we're not currently equipped to handle um, those different and, and those differences and those competing priorities. And so, um, I don't know what that's going to take. <laughs> I kind of want to defer to my sociologist colleague, um, who studies a lot more policy than I do. But I do think, you know, one of the conversations that's emerging in this space, particularly around green gentrification and how to minimize our gentrification in general, is you know more strategic policies at the city, you know, county level, state levels, and really kind of adding restrictions around development um, because we're starting to see again those displacements happening. Yes, we need more infrastructure, but really to refine the infrastructure that's already created. Um, I think you know there, at some point we will need to see a. Um, a, a cap, if you will, on the type of development that's allowed in certain places so that we don't continue to displace people, but also make space and, and room for those who are, are still coming. So, um, Thanks. Well, since you evoked me, yeah. <laughs> I mean, number one, of course, and I, you know, a bunch of us have worked on this in different ways, we have to break the link between green investment in communities and displacement. Otherwise, you have a zero-sum game, which is horrible, and of course, this is what happens in a hot land market. You you bring improvement to a neighborhood, and the landlord sees a chance to turn over the tenant or to turn over the land. Um, one solution to this, I think, is clearly rent control. That, to me, is a major green policy. Another one is building social housing. One social housing project I saw is pretty interesting, I think, to think about this question of, of receiving communities. Um, I visited this project a few years ago before COVID. Um, it had been built with public investment and then under essentially the supervision and control of a local housing movement. It was named for Nelson Mandela, and uh, Frey Betu, who was a sort of uh, left-wing priest that the movement saw as an ally. And it was built um, in dialogue with uh, small farmers who were going to set up shop to sell basically organic groceries at a discount to these housing movement members um, once every week or so. This was not in uh, the Bay. It was in Saint Bernardou, which is an industrial suburb of Sao Paulo. And it was uh, exemplifies one of the most interesting parts of Brazil's uh, public home building program, which is that a small number, a small percent of the new housing complexes, too small, but a small percent of new housing complexes are built in a direct, specific dialogue with housing movement members. And that gives them a real ability to shape those projects from the political culture and internationalist political culture to a form of environmental politics, in this case, uh, in dialogue with the landless peasants' movements and an ability for a sense of community empowerment. I actually visited this project at an amazing time. The, the buildings were half built and the, and the future residents came and got to see what their apartments would look like. And hilariously, they had all the like, new appliances represented by thin cardboard reproductions. So you got like a one-inch deep fridge. But you could see where it was going to go. And people were extremely, extremely happy. And I, I think a lot of the lessons we could learn come from places in the global south, like Sao Paulo, which have been building a lot of housing in recent years, and where movements have fought to rehabilitate abandoned buildings in central areas, to get zoning for public housing on new public transit corridors that were going to be densified, and to have significant control over the construction of new public housing with public funds. So, you know, to me, I think, in a way, what we have to do in the global north is have a kind of green developmental state that uses public resources in dialogue with community groups to literally rebuild the world that we live in. And we actually have far more experience and more lessons to learn from that in a place like Latin America, I think, than we have in the last few decades, as Karen pointed out, insofar as the U.S. has tried that recently, it's been a traumatic, um, and in many cases, a, a disaster. 
Yeah, I'd love to um, add to that because that was actually the exact direction I was going to take my, my answer. So, um, I mean, I, I'd add to that um, what both Maya and Daniel said, um, that we're trying to work as an environmental planner. I think we have a very clear sense nowadays that we have been contributing to a major problem, that we are trying to bring um, all kinds of environmental um, infrastructure systems support to low-income communities of color. And in effect, what we've been doing is just furthering their displacement and gentrification. Um, And to me, this is, I always tell my students, the number one thing that we need to think about as planners is how do we invest in fully, because I don't really subscribe to the just green enough uh, answer to this question. Um, I want to see us be able to fully invest in low-income communities of color, give them the exact same kinds of services that we would give to any other community. And as planners, then we need to protect those communities from being displaced by the very things that we're trying to do to support them. And actually, um, someone who I pull from a lot with this kind of work is actually the work that Daniel has done, really trying to convince planners that we cannot have a division between environmental planning and housing anymore. That as environmental planners, we need to think like housing uh, planners. We need to work with housing planners um, who have a more sophisticated understanding of what's happening on the real estate side of these communities. Um, And we need to start working together to make sure we can have these full investments in, in my case, stormwater infrastructure without displacing communities. Um, And so one thing my lab has been doing is we've actually been tracking the use of terms like ecological gentrification, environmental, green, climate, disaster, even food gentrification. Um, And it's definitely on planners' minds. Um, In the last three years, the number of journal articles and books that have been devoted to this topic have just exploded exponentially. But... um, I think we're at a point where we're trying to figure out, well, how do we pair environmental planning with um, affordable housing strategies um, or strategies for housing that make sure that the indigenous residents of a community can actually stay in place. And that, to me, is, I think, where we're stuck. Um, And a lot of it comes down to a lot of these very foundational issues of racism, colonialism, patriarchy, like how do we actually change the nature of how we're planning in order to have these kinds of strategies? That's a much, much more difficult um, issue to, to deal with. I just want to make a quick intervention. The, the Just Green Enough movement that uh, Danielle referred to is, is about making green improvements that are slightly lower quality, lower cost, um, in order to avoid gentrification, that going sort of the Walmart route. Um, and uh, a very contentious uh, idea. Um, and I just want to point, uh, point out, actually, um, we, we recently have been looking at the unintended consequences of climate mitigation, like parks, like transit lines, and we've actually been able um, to put a number to it, finally, like this is how much displacement we're actually going to see if we build the transit line here. And what the exercise told us is that we just have to mandate mitigation. We have to mandate that if you put a transit line in or a park or a bikeway, you have to preserve affordable housing around it. That just should be part of the law. Just like you mitigate the traffic signal timing, you mitigate the housing crisis that you're causing. So, sorry. 
<laughs> Go ahead. Just a couple of small comments to add to what everyone has said. I mean, I think that um, there, a lot of communities have refugee resettlement agencies and community-based organizations that have been helping to resettle people who have fled communities um, for reasons of uh, political asylum. And so I think that's a real asset that we can look to in terms of um, you know, what it takes to provide the resources that people need, access to jobs, access to training, access to language services. How do you navigate a transportation system? How do you get to, how do you dress in the cold weather? Um, you know, there are all sorts of really incredible services that so many communities are providing, but like as everyone has said on this panel, um, a lot of people and communities are going to be trying to figure out how to capitalize on this, on the climate crisis in general and climate-related displacement in particular in ways that don't really serve the needs of those communities and put longtime residents at risk of displacement. And so I think it's, it's important to do really place-based, locally-driven work like what many of us are talking about that really tries to figure out um, you know, not just following the advice of meteorologists who don't necessarily fully understand. I mean, meteorologists are amazing. They're wonderful. But they don't fully understand what it takes for a community to be climate safe. And so we need to be thinking about energy systems, food systems. Of course, housing systems are going to be fundamental to all of this. Transportation systems. How do people get safe, affordable access to all of that? And how can we um, you know, really engage with communities in ways that drive solutions both to accepting people who are going to need a lot of resources to have um, safe, healthy, and vibrant lives and also prevent these kinds of secondary displacements that can occur. So I've been hearing a lot about community in place and, and initiatives at the very local level. I'm wondering if you all have thought about what level of government we should be taking action at and thinking about federal, state, local, provincial. Every day, all day. <laughs> it's stuck in my brain. Um, uh, and so one of the things I meant to mention earlier is that most of the work I'm doing is actually with rural communities and not in urban areas. Um, and one of the things that I'm increasingly looking at is what, if anything, we're doing as planners to actually help rural communities through the climate crisis. And so many of the tools that we have as urban planners for responding to these concerns are actually designed for strong local government. And so oftentimes what we see is what I refer to as a deficit model in rural communities. We almost expect them to be working with the same tools that we have in urban settings, but just you know, slightly less sophisticated or fewer resources, uh, fewer you know, planners. Um, and I think there are many, many of us out there. I could think of you know, others like uh, Andy Rumba and Esther Sullivan who are really trying to um, change this perspective that we have about rural planning in relation to the climate crisis. And I think it gets to this question of what scale we should be working at because I think in the United States we lack regional governance. And we can look at other countries where they have very, very strong 
uh, regional governance systems where we can actually understand what's happening in rural spaces and how they connect to uh, or more urban spaces, or we have the capacity to think of you know scales all in between exurb and suburban, um, and start to really think more fluidly about space and how these issues are occurring. And I think to me that's the scale that we need that we fundamentally lack right now in most of the U.S. Um, I think. So, like you said, all day, every day, you know, every scale of government needs to work on this. But I think there are two reasons that federal governments really need to work on this. One, no level of government in the world has the, the fiscal firepower of a federal government. Um, I don't think we want the World Bank to run this thing. Um, and there is a lot that cities can do, that states can do to facilitate um, good things, to create demonstration projects, to get things moving. But at the end of the day, for the kind of just fiscal firepower you need, a federal government. Of course, we're also talking about migration, and this is, you know, if we want to demilitarize our borders, which I really hope we will do, and ultimately make them obsolete, to echo the abolitionist demand to make prisons obsolete, that is, you know, that's going to have to be done ultimately at, federal, at the federal level. The other thing is that the only people who get to call the Americas home really are indigenous peoples. And so when we start talking about things like land back, the necessity of reconceiving the places we live as kind of plurinational assemblages uh, in dialogue with indigenous nations, that ultimately is going to have to get up to the federal level. There are interesting local projects. There's going to be this really fascinating um, housing development in Vancouver uh, led by the Squamish Nation, I believe. And this will be a very interesting case of kind of mixed use, mixed income, super dense development that um, some people in Vancouver are thinking of as a kind of land back. So there's a lot that can happen at the city, regional, et cetera level. But you know, the treaties that indigenous nations, those that did sign treaties, signed them with federal governments. And I think nation to nation relations is an appropriate way to think about. Um, uh, politics of indigenous sovereignty, which we should have. And so I think, once again, the, the kind of holy grail here is real action at the, at the federal level uh, in dialogue with other nations that um, also occupy this space, or that should say, rather, um, who have long lived in this space, lived uh, indefinitely in the space in which we now occupy. Anybody else? So um, I've been, you know, as, as we've been talking and, and just the, the film that really set off this whole discussion, I've been thinking about these communities that people land in and, and as you're, you guys are talking about the type of resilience that you need in, the, in these receiving communities in order to organize. Um, I'm wondering if, um, if any of you have thought about the social networks that these communities have, and in particular because, I'm just thinking historically, immigration has taken place through social networks. So you have migration chains and you have communities landing in particular places. And just in your experience, have you, have you seen these communities um, coming from a climate uh, you know, displacement uh, problem, you know, clustering in an area um, and, and working together? I mean, one of the um, observations I made when I was in Buffalo, and I think this has been pretty well documented, that a, um, a large number of Puerto Ricans migrated to Buffalo after Hurricane Maria because there were existing networks and really strong communities of Puerto Ricans. And I think that um, there were sort of two observations that I made. One is that there were really strong social institutions and um, 
really strong cultural institutions that were able to provide many resources to people, um, especially immediately following that displacement, just in terms of shelter and housing and supplies. And um, But then what happened over time is students started not showing up at school because they didn't get all of the language services that they needed or they didn't get access to um, the, you know, other members of their community who they could relate to. Like, the children couldn't develop the social ties or over time people couldn't necessarily find jobs. So there was sort of an immediate relief effort that happened where those community-based institutions were able to draw resources from broader networks. But then over time people sort of fall off the radar. Um, so I think like that is exactly what we're gonna see, that people are gonna move where they have family members or existing social ties. Um, and I just, I wonder how sustained those, those networks and resources are gonna be over time unless there's sort of broader community investment beyond those, yeah, those cultural institutions. Um, so uh, let's let's return to the the people um, that are um, hit in a in a place that's hit by a climate disaster or climate change um, of some kind and and the stories we saw um, in the film uh, you know nos tenemos we we want to stay uh, we want to stay in the area um, we we so how are, how can we help. How can we help? What can we do? Because we think a lot about what we can do in the global north to prepare our communities. Well, we think a, a little bit about it, at least. Um, but we're, we're, we haven't really focused on, on helping people stay. Because most people say, well, those places, it's not rational. Those places are going to go. So, so why should we help them stay? So I, I just wonder if you all would like to speak to that question. I go first. I mean, I think it's one word. It's just reparations. Um, when we look at, you know, who has contributed the most to the climate crisis, it's the global north. And who's going to suffer the most from climate change is the global south. And so I think there needs to be reparations. And there have been so many proposals at different levels of governance, especially in international governance, to make those reparations. But they haven't been followed up on. And so I think that's a really important first step. Um, I think of, you know, in the example of, of Puerto Rico after Maria, the video talked about something that I saw on the ground too, which is, you know, Puerto Ricans being uh, compelled to leave the archipelago, move to Florida or to Atlanta, um, being given vouchers and one-way tickets. Um, and if they stayed, then having this massive fight with FEMA, trying to get any funding to fix their homes, and you still see, you know, the blue tarps on houses all across Puerto Rico, even now it's been almost five years since the hurricanes. Um, and so I think reparations are most important because all of this, like we talked about earlier, is tied to historical inequities, historical wrongs, and I think to really address those issues where displacement is happening, you have to start there first. Um, I, I I think there are two parts to your question, Karen, which are really interesting. And, and one of them, I think, one of the questions in a way is like, 
if we take the logic of reparations, if we do what you're saying, which I think we should, you know, maybe you're suggesting there's some danger of like, oh, okay, this neighborhood is going to be underwater, we'll build up right next door. And is there maybe some danger of pouring resources into um, defending communities where it doesn't make sense? You know, you don't want to build endless seawalls uh, up and up and up and up. So I, you know, I think that's a really hard question. I don't know what the answer to that. Certainly, um, my friend Liz Kozloff, who's at UCLA, has done fascinating research um, in Staten Island where she found communities of people who are essentially politically Republican, libertarian-leaning, um, organized collectively after Hurricane Sandy and said, we actually want to be bought out. We want a chance to move to a safer place. But they had a condition, don't replace what we just left with a luxury beach, beachside development. It has to be given back to Mother Nature so that it can be a kind of ecological zone. And I think there's, there's a lesson there. And so, I, you know, again, I come back to what is it take to make moving less traumatic. And it might be in part that you don't have to move very far, right? So climate projections, migration projections, which are just numbers on, on a page, but they might find you know, people from the Gulf might move just to Austin, might not move that, that far away. Um, but again, I want to think, what, is, what are the, the conditions under which you could build a truly vibrant, beautiful world? I also do, like as I said, I do research in Sao Paulo where many of the people in the housing movement are people who themselves or their parents migrated from the Northeast for opportunity. And I think they want that cultural connection to the northeast of Brazil, but they also want to live well where they are. And I just, you know, I think of places like Vienna, which where two-thirds of the housing is practically off the market, about half of that is built by the public, a city in which the Social Democratic Party, since its first election in 1919, has never lost a free election because it has put high-quality social housing at the core of its agenda, and think there is an, a huge opportunity to build multiracial working-class communities of architectural splendor, people living in temples of public luxury, using the best architectural techniques available, creating the cutting edge of green construction. That is all real. That is all possible. That could be scaled up. And I think in all the, 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 the power of that promise, I think, is really, really substantial. And I, you know, I do wonder if part of the reason why it's so terrifying to get displaced in the U.S. is because where would you go? I mean, if you're given a voucher for $200,000, what is that worth in the Bay? You know, you get bought out of your home almost anywhere. And then you look at the housing market that you're moving into. So we have to help people stay in as much as it's possible. But we have an opportunity to make moving and arriving so much better <laughs> than it currently is. And I think that does deserve a lot of focus. Your comments remind me of um, some research that I participated on back in the day when I was a master's student in North Carolina. And there had been several FEMA floodplain buyouts following hurricanes Floyd and Fran, and they were all sort of somewhat different in, in nature. In one case, there was really good, um, I think, financial counseling, and the others there weren't. In one case, they actually tried to move the entire community to the same receiving community, and it was really interesting in interviews. Um, with those buyout participants, they did seem to have much stronger social ties and were sort of coping better with the move than others. So they're all different sorts of like creative strategies and ways of doing this. You know, in that case, it was a community that had experienced a lot of population loss in the past and was really eager and um, happy to like receive these folks and they weren't, you know, moving to an entirely different country, entirely different state, let alone entirely um, different country. And I, I also think that, um, you know, it's not always the we make this assumption that because people are living in a place that is at risk to climate-related disasters, that like they're exacerbating it or they're um, increasing the vulnerability, and that's not always the case, right? It's like 
Daniel is saying. I think it has to do with the way that we're developing in those places and this assumption that things are going to be better if people um, are relocated is not always true. And so we, we really need to sort of think about that on a case-by-case basis. I guess I'll just add one additional thought. Um, so we're talking about different examples in, in, in specific locations. And anecdotally, right, I, I think this kind of goes back to um, what we were talking about earlier in regards to people's choice to actually stay. Um, and I think there's, there's layers built in there where you, you have history, right? So, for example, um, you know, my family has roots um, post-slavery in South Carolina along the coast, not too far from James Island, Hilton Head, that region. And it's an area where they're building up quite a bit commercially. And, you know, historically, we can trace back that family land to, you know, post-slavery, 40 acres and a mule, right? Like, that was the land that my family got. It was given, if you will, and we've held on to it for generations, and we're still holding on to it. And so I think you know, but this is also still an area that is is one of those regions that's susceptible to to flooding, and 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 so I think you know I I can't emphasize this enough that you know the when we talk about solutions and we just think about what it means to actually have people move from places, there can be such deeply embedded pride and history in places that can't be overlooked. Um, in the case of my family, like I said, we're fighting to hold on to this land that they're actively trying to take from us. But the pride that's in that, that for generations we've held on to this land for over a century now, right? Like there's, there's something there that I think, given the choice to stay, my family's going to try to hold on to that for as many generations as we can. And so there's, you know, back to Danielle's point around reparations and what does it look like to still equip people and families and communities to stay where they are, particularly because there can be such deeply embedded history in these places. I think it's important that we keep that in mind, too, in these conversations. Yeah, this makes me think again about urban renewal and how we picked up families and we made them move, and then those urban renewal sites sat for decades, empty, and they had to watch and look at the sites where their homes were, where their grandmothers has raised them, and so forth. Um, and so they had experienced that sense of loss, that root shock, um, the Mindy Fuller love term, you know, over and over again. So, um, though I really love in theory, the idea of being able to move somebody, some people nearby to some other safe place, um, in, in reality, it's, it doesn't really mitigate the trauma. I, I, we're kind of nearing the end of our time, and I, I wanted to just open it up a bit, um, and because I know you guys have studied a lot of different things, and I want to make sure that you have time to talk about um, some of the work you're doing and, and some of your other thoughts that you didn't get to express tonight. <laughs> the open-ended question, the dreaded open-ended question. Yeah, well, I, I guess um, I'll just jump in and say, I kind of mentioned it in passing earlier, but um, we oftentimes focus so much on urban areas that we forget that there are many people who live in rural areas um, and that they need a fundamentally different set of strategies to deal with what they're dealing with, that they too are dealing with climate change and 
my own work in South Texas where, you know, we don't have very strong land use and zoning regulations to really help people deal with the flooding and the um, issues of, you know, increasing uh, hurricanes and tropical storms. Like, we need to remember rural areas as much as urban areas. Stitch those together somehow um, so we have broader set of strategies that, yes, there's only 30% of people in the U.S. that we think live in incorporated areas, but that's still 30%. Um, so that's, that's something I've been really thinking about and trying to protect them from, from potentially unnecessary displacement. I guess I'll add on to that. I, my focus isn't necessarily in rural communities, but I've been very interested in this idea that even in urban spaces, you know, a lot of our solutions around infrastructure and even around climate adaptation requires you to still be connected to the grid. So if you're disconnected from the grid, even within urban spaces, particularly, you know, when we think about unhoused communities in the Bay Area in particular, um, what does that look like? What does water access look like? What does energy access look like? What access to these basic, you know, public services, if you will, these basic forms of infrastructure that kind of govern how we, how we navigate through lives or kind of, you know, dictate our quality of life. What does that look like? Um, and so I think, you know, just going off of what Danielle said, you know, there, there are people that even in our current strategies we're, we're constantly leaving out. Um, and I, I think it's just going to require us to, again, kind of reimagine and get a little bit creative in, in terms of our solutions around, you know, what do we mean when we say um, underserved? Who are the you know who are the folks who are most vulnerable? Um, and making sure that we're not excluding even those who you know may be um, within the spaces but disconnected from the services that we often provide. Um, I guess I would just emphasize that uh, we need to be really cautious about homogenizing places because people experience places in different ways depending on what resources you have access to. And so I'm sort of um, fixated on this idea of climate refuge in that context and like for whom is a particular climate a refuge and what is the experience of that climate like depending on who you are and just this you know, call to really hold leaders accountable when you say that you wanna be a receiving city um, in the midst of this crisis then make it so. Like, don't just pronounce it, but actually do some planning, make some investment, um, work with communities to analyze the types of threats that longtime residents could experience, um, as well as you know, new new migrants, new refugees, um, new displaced peoples who you want to welcome. Um, I really appreciate the constant. Reference: There is no big sweeping answer to this, 100%. Um, and I'm really appreciative also of the rural focus because also politically, morally, it's essential. Um, um, and I really appreciate the point you made about your family wanting to stay in their land. And the truth is that um, if it were impossible to stay in flood-prone land, then the Netherlands wouldn't exist. And yet they are one of the <laughs> truly thriving empires of all of the last uh, you know half millennium. So uh, clearly, there are things that can be done, um, at least for now. Um, I, you know, I think that just a couple things I want to highlight. One is just scale. I mean, I think we've been talking about it from a kind of intimate community level, which is appropriate. But again, as Karen's statistics, like the amount of change coming from climate break-in and our reactions to it is like unfathomably, unfathomably vast. I think we have to be thinking at the scale of the Second World War, the great anti-colonial revolts of the last century, the rise of capitalism itself. This is just, this will be the story. Um, to me, the road we're on is the eco-apartheid road. I mean, we haven't dwelled on it, but yes, militarized borders, 
border walls getting people elected, what we're seeing in places like Europe, like that is the horrible road we're on. And I think, I've been thinking about this a lot and I don't know what the answer is, but I think the opposite of eco-apartheid would be something like multiracial economic democracy. Not just multiracial democracy, which would be good, but multiracial economic democracy. And, you know, we've raised endless questions about how would you decide, and it shouldn't be a decision that's made by HUD officials appointed by Donald Trump and his friends. And so I think there, there is a, there, we have to even figure out what are the right questions to come up with the answers where people who um, are assigned different categories are not pitted against each other in a really grim world, but where we are making decisions out of solidarity within communities and across borders um, together to find some new way to flourish in a different kind of era. So that's, those are the kind of big ideas I'm wrestling with. How that actually pans out, I don't know. Hopefully we'll all find out together. I'm very grateful to have a bunch of friends who work physically on the built environment because my abstract social graphs are very limited. <laughs> And I think those of you who are specialists in the built environment are very, very important in an era when the remaking of the built environment is probably like the single biggest decider of our future. So thanks for hanging out with me. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, as, a, as an urban planner and somebody that thinks about the future, I always like to end panels on an up note. And uh, this is a solvable problem. And... <laughs> So we, I'm sorry to say we can't do that tonight, can we? Um, but, you know, what, what we can do is, is, is be more conscious together um, of the places and the people uh, that are uh, traumatized on an ongoing basis um, by climate change and disasters. And um, right now we have an estimate that it's, it's almost half of the United States um, where, of the counties that have uh, experienced climate change-related uh, stresses this, in, in this last year, and, and it's growing. Um, and soon it will uh, you know, be, be most of us that will be experiencing this. And it's going to take really remaking our institutions and and opening our hearts uh, in a way that we haven't done really, um, you know, well, perhaps ever um, <laughs> in some countries, um, a, a, a different way of thinking um, about sharing the resources that we have and collaborating uh, together to... to, um, to, to make a more equitable future in, in the face of this disaster that we're facing. So, ladies and gentlemen, the Climate Equity um, and Environmental Justice Cluster at University of California, Berkeley. Sorry, Meg, we missed you tonight. I hope you're feeling better. And um, please stay tuned uh, because, you know, this is, this is a community of practice that's growing at Berkeley, at Toronto, many universities, uh, around the world are focusing on this. There's going to be a lot of creative work coming out, and, and we're counting on it um, to really raise awareness. So thank you tonight uh, for joining. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>